Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. So without further ado, on to today's guest, Cressy Wessling MBE, who is one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. Cressy is the co-founder of the award-winning business Elvis and Cressy, who turn industrial waste into innovative luxury products and return 50% of their profits to charities related to waste. Since founding the business, Elvis and Cressy have gone from strength to strength. From their origins, using reclaimed fire hose, they now work with 12 different waste streams, have several charitable partnerships, and are involved with collaborations across industries, including a really exciting partnership with the Burberry Foundation to take all of Burberry's off-cut leather and turn them into stunning bags and accessories. In recognition of the incredible work she has done, she was awarded an MBE and is also Cartier's Women in Business Laureate in 2011. She's advised global businesses, governments, and more recently sat on a panel with Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. In this episode, we cover a range of fascinating topics, including Cressy's childhood and why she decided to leave home at 16 to attend college halfway around the world in Hong Kong how Elvis and Cressy started the business and the challenges that they had to overcome in their early years, Cressy's philosophy on building a team and her approach to hiring great people, and the importance of the circular economy and why it is critical to your business's long-term success. It was a chance encounter with her partner Elvis on the train back after a rugby match many years ago that led me to getting to know Cressy and hearing about their inspiring story and unique mission played a big role in me setting up JBM almost seven years ago. She was also one of the first people that I asked to join our board of advisors and has been a brilliant confidant and an incredible mentor to me over the last five years. So if you're thinking about launching your own business or want to know how you and your firm can achieve profitable growth that also helps the environment, then you are going to love this interview. So with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Cressy Wessling. Cressy, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Excellent. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, I thought we would kick things off with an overview of your CV in 30 seconds, if you don't mind. Wow, 30 seconds. I did a politics degree at McGill. Then I went to Hong Kong and I worked for a VC for slightly less than two years. Then I started my own business. It was a biodegradable packaging business. It was kind of fun and great, except for way too ahead of its time. And then I moved to the UK because I met the amazing Elvis. And in 2005, started Elvis and Cressy and have been running that ever since. Very good. Very good. I think that was a about 30 seconds. Well done, Cressy. Um, so you grew up in Canada um, and at 16 decided to move halfway across the world to attend the United World College in Hong Kong. So for those that don't know about UWC, what is it and what led you to attend it? The United World Colleges are a group of schools. At the time that I went, I think there was nine. And I think there's so many more than that now. And they're all over the world. The first one was in the UK 
And then there was one in Canada, there's one in the US and things like that. And the goals are world peace through international education. So they want to get lots of young people together who are super idealistic and super motivated and get them to kind of fall in love with each other intellectually, etc. So that in the future, there's no possible way they could ever fight each other in a war. I think that's the general premise. It's also very liberal and very hardcore in terms of the academic side. So you have to be fairly academic to get in, otherwise you just wouldn't survive once you got there. And what led me to want to attend it, I was going to a rural Canadian high school at the time. There was only 200 students there and it just felt too small. I wanted an adventure and I, yeah, I was desperate for an adventure and I applied to the UWCs. And you also recommended that we hire Perry, even though you hadn't ever met her, but you found out that she also went to UWC and we've hired her and she's been a brilliant hire. So told you so. Clearly, (laughs) (laughs) clearly somewhere that produces great people and great candidates. Mm. So were there any sort of concerns or questions that you asked yourself when making such a big decision at what was a relatively young age? No, you know, I was like that at 16. I'm like that now. I don't really uh, no, re- no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think, wow, is this going to be a good idea? <laughs> no. Just jump straight in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to live your life. Mm. I know the UWC has a number of notable alumni, mm-hmm. uh, many politicians. You mentioned uh, they have a very clear mission. What's it about the education there that helps people achieve this sort of success? And how does that differ from your standard high school education and I guess for anyone listening or anyone who has kids that they think might be suitable what sort of person do you think would benefit from that education? I think it is definitely for adventurous kids that want something more and they want to explore and they want to meet people from all over the world and they maybe have a cosmopolitan personality. It's also for kids that aren't you know that maybe in their home environment aren't particularly academically challenged and need something more than that and I would say it's definitely more suitable for kids that are in some way outgoing, whether that be, you know, in maths or in, you know, social situations. It doesn't really matter, but they need to have some way of expressing themselves. You know, they can't be a complete and utter total hermit grabber. It's going to be wasted on them. And what helps people find success? I think it's because it doesn't necessarily focus on traditional metrics of success. You know, it's a given once you're there that you're going to be able to complete the IB. Then the rest of the day you spend doing community service activities. So the real focus there is to make you a complete and whole human being and able to go out into the world and have some resilience and and tackle any challenge that might be thrown at you and appreciate all of the ridiculous, insane privileges that you would have then subsequently have had having been to that school. So most of the, you know, if I look at my class, They're all incredible people and successful in all kinds of different ways. But the thread that runs throughout is that they're all really tough people, really resilient. And also, you know, still at the core, no matter how many knocks the world has thrown at them, they're all still idealistic, which is not something you can say of most people in their early 40s. True. Do you keep in touch with, uh, do you still have friends from UWC? Have you kept in touch with a few of them? Yeah, I'm I'm in touch with a lot of people from my class and certainly they're some of my best friends. It sounds like in this world at the moment with everything going on, uh, it feels like there should be a few more schools like that. Yes. Well, thank goodness it's a growing movement. <laughs> I think we should get on to Elvis and Cressy. The story of how you came about with the idea is a very inspiring one. So for our 
listeners benefit. How did you come up with the idea and why did you launch the business? I came to the UK in 2004 and I was really interested in understanding the way this country worked. You know, when you grow up in Canada, you understand how Canada works in certain ways. And I've always loved things like power stations and landfill sites and sewage treatment plants because that's where you kind of see the guts of society, how it functions. And this was a time you got to really cast your mind back to 2004. The internet really didn't deliver you everything. You couldn't go onto Google and get the Office of National Statistics data on British waste. You had to go to the British Library. You had to talk to a librarian. You had to have, you had to sort of leaf through hours and hours of, of reports. And what I discovered was that in that year, 2004, the UK was going to landfill 100 million tons of waste. So this was a figure that just hit me like a ton of bricks, particularly because I thought, you know, I came from Hong Kong where half of their sewage at the time went into the sea untreated, where there was no recycling almost at all, except for a few small, tiny micro initiatives. And I thought coming to the UK, I was going to find that it was just so much more advanced than that. And what I found that at the time, the UK was kind of at the bottom of the European pile. And how dare a small, tiny island nation with no hinterland and no away be reliant on landfill? Particularly a country that sort of prides itself on creativity because it's really not creative to just go, well, let's bury it. You know, it's a very depressing thing. So I discover this 100 million tons. Then I start, because 100 million tons means nothing to anyone. So I started going to landfill sites to discover what this looked like. And I expected to see the domestic refuse, you know, the, the black bin bags and the tennis rackets and the nappies. I expected that. What I didn't expect was all of this commercial waste truck after truck after truck of single waste streams to be coming in. Just because, again, they lack the kind of creativity to challenge themselves and say, really, should we be throwing this away? Or could there be another use for it? You know, we had something, I think at the time or just after that, something formed called the National Industrial Symbiosis Program, which was supposed to get these companies to work together. But of course, you know, it failed. But w what I thought was, I can't solve a hundred million ton problem. I can solve one of these problems. And the problem I fell in love with was London's fire hoses. And I didn't care what I was going to do with it. I just cared that it not go to landfill anymore. So I started bringing it home to our house share in Brixton. And that made me massively popular with Elvis and all of our housemates who thought it was very, very odd hobby to take up. It is, it's your passion for waste is unique, but I know it's the genesis of what has become an incredible story and an incredible business. I know your first big order came about in an interesting way. And I think it's, there's probably many learnings there for someone looking to launch their business. Can you share how that came about and how you use that or, or what you learned from that first order to help you grow your business? We were playing with the hose. At this point, it was we because... I was always pestering Elvis to help me with this waste problem. And we had tried quite a few things. You know, I we tried making roof tiles and that failed for quite a few reasons. We tried making furniture and that failed for quite a few other reasons. But we had worked out, or Elvis was in the process of working out how to make a belt. So he was literally making the first belt. And I got a phone call asking if I could 
basically turn Wembley green for the day. And they were going to put on this, uh, Al Gore was doing this series of global concerts and they were to raise money for climate change and other green initiatives. And could we somehow make Wembley live up to the standard of the ethics of the concert? Well, no, you couldn't because I couldn't go in and change the toilet paper for a day and change all the F and B for a day. That's impossible because there are, you know, decade long contracts for things like that. But what I said on the call was that I could make them belts out of decommissioned fire hoses. <laughs> and wouldn't that be fantastic merchandise? Because this was a time that there was literally in the concert business, and this is what they said. They said, wow, that's, you know, this is amazing because we can't even get organic cotton t-shirts. You know, yeah, the world has changed dramatically. But at the time, we were literally the first company to ever offer a piece of green merchandise at a concert event and it was belts made out of fire hose we didn't know how to make them <laughs> they ordered a thousand and I think they needed them in three weeks so that night Elvis and I were like well we've got to learn how to make belts faster so we started cutting them with kitchen scissors and I think maybe by the end by the next morning I'd cut two Elvis had cut six or seven neither of us could move our hands anymore they were claws because we'd been sort of hacking through this four mil industrial rubber with kitchen scissors and I called them back and said look I can't do a thousand belts but I can do 500 <laughs> and Elvis was I'm still sure like Elvis how are we doing <laughs> this so we did loads of again we just went out into the world and tried to find equipment to help we found basically a pizza cutter an electric pizza cutter that could chew through the hose and cut it much faster we had to clean all of it in a bathtub. We had to find a buckle supplier. We had to do all of this in super quick time, delivered the belts, and then all the belts sold. I think the biggest thing, you know, who cares about the trauma of making them? And it was a trauma. It was three weeks with absolutely no sleep. But them selling uh, was just a revelation because who buys a belt at a concert? It's a weird thing to buy. I love the way you truly faked it till you made it. I Which wish is I... safe to do when you're talking about belts and yeah. not so great when you're talking about medical devices <laughs> or things like that. I wish I'd have got one of those very first belts. Mm. They changed from your now, and I have one of your belts. Were they vastly different to the original design? They're very similar to our current slider belt, although our current slider is I would say, you know, in a, in a different class, but from, from 20 feet away, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> I yeah. bet at the time it was a truly unique proposition. Yeah. So I think one of the things that has always stood out for me with Elvis and Cressy is, is the mission and the fact that 50% of your profits from sales are donated to charities associated with waste, which is, is amazing. And I don't think I've ever heard it, any other business in the world do that. Many people think that making money and doing good can't go hand in hand, but you've successfully achieved both and developed a thriving business that also delivers on that social mission. So how have you done that? And what advice would you give to others who are looking to balance these drivers in their own business? So it was relatively easy for us because we were starting something from nothing. I think this is incredibly difficult for businesses that already exist, that are have a legacy, that have shareholders. When you're setting out from day one, the one beautiful thing about a private limited company is that as long as you make enough money to keep the doors open, you can do whatever you want, you know, as long as it's legal. And actually, in the case of some companies, they can do things that are illegal and still, you know, maintain <laughs> uh, staying open. So I always knew that from my days in the VC, that was the one thing that I learned was the power of business. You didn't have to compromise if you didn't want to, as long as you could survive. So for me, you know, you know, financial metric of success is, is absolutely meaningless. I care that we are open 
and I care that we're growing the impact. But that's about it, you know. So the the financial side is like WD forty. You got to be good at it. You got to watch it. You've got to make sure it's looking after itself. But you can't be motivated by it because what's the point in that? I've never found an interest or a driver for money interesting in anyone else either. I don't. I don't think it's a, a great trait of you know modern urban man. Let's say. So if you're setting up a business from scratch, you can write these rules for yourself. And we immediately, we had started with this rescue mission. So that was the thing we started with. We, we started by wanting to be problem solvers. And it wasn't like a made up problem. It was a true problem. I wasn't trying to save people five seconds in an airline queue. We were trying to really take something that was going into the ground and give it a second life. And then because we were in the luxury space, we got to play with all of these other things. You know, we got to make our own packaging from waste. We, we decided to let that rescue mission run through the whole business. So it's not just the fire hose. It's our packaging. It's our lining materials. It's the workshop that we live in. It's the furniture that we designed. It's, it's how we run our life, rescue. And the second thing that we decided to do was really be about complete and total transformation. So it wasn't enough for us to, you know, you see a lot of upcycling and then what they've done is they've taken an old suitcase and flipped it on its side and called it a coffee table. But that's not what we're interested in doing. We're interested in completely changing the paradigm. Green products have failed for a long time because people bought them just because they were green and they didn't really expect them to perform. And that meant that they never won over the general market. So we didn't want to make, you know, scratchy, t-shirts that nobody wanted to wear. We wanted the belts that we wanted to make, we wanted to make the best belts in the world. The best belts for the world, of course, but the best belts in the world too. So that's what transformation is about to us. And then giving the, the money away, that was a snap decision. You meet people from the fire service and you decide, I'm giving them half the money because they should have half the money. So that's the DNA from day one. And if that's your DNA, then doing anything that's not good means you're turning your back on, on that. So of course we have to pay people well because I'm not going to have an environmentally successful business if I'm then going to turn around and be exploitative. You know, in the fashion industry, it's rife with unpaid interns and people doing year-long work experience and Shopping, having to, you know, pay for their travel and their lunch. I mean, we are not doing that because that's inappropriate way for any company to behave, particularly one in our industry. Also, you know, we have to challenge things like the seasons. You have to look at the... We're in an industry that has structurally failed. It, its processes, its pace, and the raw materials it uses are all destroying the environment. So why would we follow any of those rules? We decide to not do seasons. We decide to manufacture really slow. We decide to never, ever, ever make huge batches of anything that we know we can't sell. We don't do any discounts because that just means that you've got an excuse to overstock and overproduce and then have waste at the end. You know, there's so many things that you look at the industry and think that's insane, that's insane, that's insane. And you don't, your, your immediate reaction as starting a business shouldn't be, yeah, but I have to copy these titans. It should be like, no, they're wrong. I'm going to do it a different way. Especially if you morally feel that they're wrong. And we morally feel that they're wrong. So I think it's relatively easy for us to have done this from day one. Also, we didn't go out and raise money. We literally started this business in the bedroom of a house share in Brixton, cleaning fire hose in a bathtub. We didn't go out and raise money and then have people who were just wanting us to get a profit result. Anyone listening that is thinking about setting up their own business, something there about not having to do it 
just like everyone else and having a strong mission i think there's very inspiring and the business has grown considerably it's not like it hasn't been hugely successful because it has I'm sure there's been a few bumps along the road what's been the biggest challenge you faced so far as you've grown and how do you ensure that the business maintains its commitment to those founding principles I would say that we had a real tough time between 2010 and 2012. We were, uh, you know, we'd, we'd started in a bedroom, then we moved to Bournemouth. We rented a garage, then we went to a slightly bigger garage, then we rented a workshop. You know, we were growing steadily. And between 2010 and 2012, we had a series of things that happened that could have, each one of them could have killed us and somehow miraculously none of them did, even in concert. You know, the factory that we were working with in, in Bournemouth closed and that factory wasn't just our workforce, it was where we were co-located. So it was our workforce and our workshop. That was closed by the David Cameron Lib Dem government. So, you know, tough <laughs> breaks, right? Because it's overnight the kind of thing where you have to decide to move. We were trying to buy a building to go into, which was going to be lovely and wonderful. And we were supposed to move into that in the Christmas of 2012. And we didn't manage to do it because the, the vendors on the day of exchange sent us a text message saying we're not emotionally ready to sell, even though we'd, you know, sold our flat to buy it. So we had nowhere to live. The business had nowhere to go. It was our Christmas period. So we had to move. So basically the worst time was Christmas 2012. We had to move the workshop three or four times. And moving a workshop when you have three pieces of equipment that weigh more than a ton and then the rest is a completely impossible proposition. We somehow managed to do it. We also had an American distributor run off with lots of stock, nightmare. And we had our factory, our partner factory that we'd been making with for several years in Romania. We had Burberry discover them and buy all of their capacity. And overnight, not only did we not have a UK workshop, but we had no production facility at all. Any one of these things could have killed us. And I guess... We were extremely stubborn and we just thought, no, no, you know, that up until that point, the business was doing so well. We'd achieved things like solved London's fire hose waste problem. We had been increasing the donations year on year, things that we were genuinely proud of. And I think we just refused to think that these external factors could kill us when everything about the business intrinsically was great. And we found the mill. We found this amazing building in Kent, which literally unlocked a world of wonder for us. We somehow managed to pull through this time period and and it's made an already resilient business basically bomb-proof. I think all successful entrepreneurs that I've met have had tough times like that. Yeah. It's quite remarkable. I didn't realize all of that, but uh, it's quite remarkable you came out the other side. But having had the pleasure of being to the mill, yeah. whether that's fate or luck, or I think generally well-deserved good fortune, it is the most stunning place to live mm. and work. And I know that's another good example of how you live and breathe what you do because everything in there uh, you've done yourself and everything's from, am I right in saying everything pretty much is from reclaimed or waste yeah, goods as well? Yeah, except for the electrics because that would be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> except for the things that would be illegal, yes. Good the stuff. boilers, you know, the, the, <laughs> the heavy plumbing stuff, yeah. You've got this fascination with waste that we've alluded to already and that's clearly been with you since an early age. What fascinated you so much about waste? Because I don't know many other people that share this passion that you have. And I guess in today's world, why do you feel it's so important? I think it's mainly because it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's valuable. And we have invented it only recently. 
I think about my grandmother's generation and how her childhood would have been virtually waste-free. And then all of the subsequent progress that we've made, this wonderful progress that we've made, where we, we've just become incredibly good at churning through unbelievably precious raw materials to the detriment of the planet. And the planet is our home. So you can't divorce it from being just bad for the planet and not bad ultimately for us. So I think it's, it's just this incredible trajectory of stuff that's happened in virtually the last century. And how do we reverse that? And how do we get people to cherish these things again? And I suppose that's why it's so important for us to make really beautiful and really wonderful things because I understand that not everyone loves waste the way that I do. I have to get them to love it. And the only way for other people to love it is if we make it truly exceptional and truly extraordinary and, and unrecognizable as anything other than something luxurious and aspirational. Well, I'm a big consumer. I have right here my Elvis and Cressy book in front of me. And I'm sure anyone that's listening that hasn't checked them out definitely should because they are stunning products. You've talked before, and I guess to, to the point you just made, about how important the circular economy is and how these concepts should be taught in design schools. For those who don't know what that is, what is the circular economy and how can those outside of fashion and design apply these principles into their own businesses and lives? Okay, so the world is circular. Before man, before we became this hideously destructive species, the world existed in a circular way. If you look into the natural system, the water cycle or the natural cycle, it's incredibly good at filtering everything through in a completely circular way. You know, so the water evaporates from the oceans and then it rains on the land and it helps nature to grow as it flows back into the sea. And this is just something that happens in a wonderfully beautiful, magical, natural way. And what we've done is applied straight lines and economics to this and said, no, we're going to take something out of the ground. We're going to turn it into something. And I don't really care what happens when it dies. And that's the linear economy. If we want to transition to a circular economy, it means we have to look at all the wonderful resources around us, like the metal chair legs or the glass windows or the fiber ceiling panels. And they all have to be designed in a way that they can be taken apart and returned into another system or to the system from whence they came. So it has to be perpetual reuse, perpetual recycling. And we can't completely recycle our way out of this because we basically have to reduce, reduce, reduce as a main component. We cannot consume fashion at the pace that we do, even if we do it in a circular way because there simply isn't enough potential for cotton or other textile creation. And the main underlying principle behind all this is that it has to be powered by renewable energy. Otherwise, you're powering a circular economy with a linear fuel. So it has to be a circular fuel, which means renewables. Is there one particular thing that you would advise our audience that may be ignorant to some of these things that they can go out and start doing from, from now? Yeah, I mean, you can run your life in a really circular way. You can go to Bulb and buy your energy from them. which we just means, signed up. <laughs> excellent, which means that you're, you know, Bulb is a B Corp, but also they're a green energy provider. So your gas and your electricity are all coming from renewable sources or offsetting. So you're in a system where all of the money you put into your power bills is financing the world you want to live in. Then you can start looking at all of the other decisions that you make. 
and how you might make them slightly differently. You know, the Lancet, I think it was about two months ago now, released something called the Diet for Planetary Health. And you know what? It's not a vegan diet, but it is very low on meat and it is very low on dairy. And that's because if we all want to be healthy people and we all want everybody to have enough food, then we do have to have plant-heavy diets. So, you know, have a look at the planetary health diet and see how you can start tweaking and adjusting and get on the road to it. You know, I, Elvis and I have been on that journey for a long time and it's meant I've had to learn to cook differently, which is, you know, just another adventure. So enjoy it. Don't think of it as being depressing. Just enjoy it. Clothing. Why, why anyone would buy new clothing when we have eBay in a country which the UK is the biggest consumer per capita of clothing. So we, we buy the most items per person, which means that our eBay is filled with the most <laughs> incredible things. To, to the extent that I'm going to an event in a couple of weeks, I put in the designer name and my size, and I had 20 options, all dresses over 300 pounds, all available for 40 pounds. I can wear it, and then I can resell it. You know, so so Win-win. what are so so what are we doing? You know, these things can be reused. You can swish. You can talk to your friends. You can share things. We don't all have to buy power tools. You know, anybody who needs any furniture made can just come and hang out with us on the weekend. <laughs> you do not need to go out and buy all of the kit that Elvis has. He does a lot of woodwork. Not everybody needs <laughs> those saws. Great advice. Before we come on to some talent-related questions, um, which I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on, what does 2019 hold in store for Elvis and Cressy because I know you've there's been some amazing stuff happening over the last 12 months yeah well we I mean we're in year two now of a five-year partnership with the Burberry Foundation which is about rescuing their leather and transforming into amazing goods and possibly the most exciting thing that's happening is that we just finished our first year of that partnership which and we just finished our accounts for the first year of that partnership which means we just are about to give away 50% of the profits from that first year of the partnership and we are giving those profits to Barefoot College which is an amazing charity based in India that exists to educate women in the maintenance and the deployment of solar infrastructure okay And we did three times better than I expected we would do, which means we have been able to not do one scholarship, but we are sponsoring three scholarships. There are three amazing women from Guatemala who are currently in India (laughs) right now learning how to be solar engineers. And when they take that knowledge back to their villages, they will be able to create renewable infrastructure and maintain it and teach their villages how to maintain it and spread this wonderful technology. Uh, and it'll benefit 750 people. That is amazing. It's Congratulations. Huge. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. So that so now then you get your teeth into it. And that means I just want to expand the leather project ever bigger. Because what can how many scholarships can we do next year then? So that's the that's the driver for us. That's the success metrics for us is how much can we give? And it has to be more because you get hungry, you get hungry for it. It's like a drug, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, well, I'm sure next year will be even better. And uh, I'll be very interested to hear how those guys get on. We talked a bit about Elvis, who I met on a train many years ago, which is how, how we all came to know each other. You're not just business partners, but you're also life partners. Mm. What's it like working with your other half? And how do the two of you balance your work and personal lives to ensure you have the best possible relationship? both for yourselves and the business. So I know that I have to caveat this with, I know this would not work for every couple, okay? I 100% understand that and I get that. But when I met Elvis in, uh, just before we turned 25, 
he was dressed as Superman. He introduced himself to me as Elvis. And I really, it changed my world in an instant. And we've always had this really incredible relationship where it was about an, a lot of mutual respect and a lot of trust and a lot of fun and a lot of going out to seek whatever challenges that we wanted to seek and apply to ourselves. So we, we have that as kind of a baseline. We didn't immediately start the business together. We started the business, you know, when we came to the UK. So it was, it was definitely a couple of years into when our relationship. When you brought a load of fires back yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. He knew what he was getting into. There's, you know, he, he knew. But we have never had an issue working together. And I think it's because, you know, the first business I ever had, I had a, a business partner that was a, a wonderful person, but just not someone I share my life with. And when you are starting a business, what you know about it is that you have to spend all your time doing it. It's going to suck all of your energy. It's the kind of thing that is 24 hours a day and is seven days a week. And yes, I do understand that you do sleep during that time. But even when you're going to sleep and when you're waking up, you're agonizing about it. And Elvis, you know Elvis, so you can back me up on this. He is the coolest. He is the most interesting. He is the funniest. He is the most generous. He is the most talented person I have ever met. He's annoyingly talented at everything. So, so why? So, so you meet someone like that. I'm not going to go out and then find a business partner. Yeah, fair. That, that's crazy. I have, you know, I have one life. I'm not going to spend the bulk of it with a bunch of random people that I would always be comparing to someone else. Yeah. You know. Totally. And having, I mean, the story of meeting Elvis on the train, it was from an hour and a half, the poor bloke got on with uh, all of my rugby team and he was stuck with us for an hour and a half journey. And we talked, we talked about business, we talked about Elvis and Cressy, and he was very modest about you guys. And I think someone Googled your business while we were on that journey and Cameron Diaz was wearing one of your belts and we, were, we all just looked around going, this guy is being very modest. He's but ridiculously it, modest. He's like, so if modest. You, if, you, if someone even asks him now, what do you do at a random cocktail party? He'll say, oh, I make bags. <laughs> typical, yeah, typical. Whereas I'd be like, we make the best bags <laughs> in the world, for the world. It's the most incredible company. It's the same as actually one of his uni mates, you know, runs this castle B&B in Cornwall, the most incredible place that you can possibly imagine. And I was at an event with her and someone said, you know, what do you do? And she said, oh, I, I run a, um, a restaurant with some rooms. <laughs> I was like, oh. it's a castle in Cornwall. <laughs> I think that's why I, I, it's very unassuming. But for me, the story was was a big part of why I not many months later decided to set JBM up. And mm. um, so I, I owe him and you guys a, a lot for that. Well, I, I know that the business isn't just about you two. Uh, you do have a dedicated team that support you in the running of the business. What's been your approach to hiring for the team? And how do you ensure that the people you hire not only have the skills, but also are the right culture fit? And it's something that we've discussed over the years. Mm. It'd be great to get your perspective on that. Well, over the years, I've certainly learned something. Elvis is really good at hiring people and I'm not. So now, you know, this is the other thing about a balance between us is that we've also over time worked out what the other person's specialties are. And there isn't really an overlap. So we just outsource to each other the things that the other is good at. Elvis is very good at recognizing two things in people. And that is attitude and aptitude. Other than that, I don't really care. I don't care what's on someone's CV. I don't care what their background is. If they're coming into our crafts team, the key thing is, do they have a good attitude and are they afraid of the sewing machines or not? Because everything else you can teach, right? And I think to a certain extent in the team that I'm trying to build, obviously with Elvis's help, <laughs> is that I'm looking for you know attitude and aptitude as well. If it's for a digital role, clearly they have to have some digital aptitude. 
But it's primarily this idea that we're doing something important and do you want to be a part of that or not? And when you're in, you're in. So I remember the I had to write an employee handbook when we first hired someone. And it was literally like, you start on this day. We'll see how we get on. If you litter, you're fired. And Elvis was like, I think we need to put some more detail. <laughs> and I was like, do we? Do we? Because if they litter outside, they are gone. You know, I just, you know, I want to be perfectly clear. But I, I yeah, I think it's something that all businesses struggle with at with and we are no different and I do think it's tough for founders because you know we are doing this 24 7 and and I you can't expect anyone who's coming into the business to to do that and work with you in that same way but you can find people that are incredible and just have a great personality and are a joy to be around because fundamentally you're going to spend a lot of time with people so it is about a joy yeah yeah, I would agree with that. And full disclosure, Cressy is a board advisor at JBM and she's seen the trials and tribulations for us in terms of hiring. And, and it's the hardest thing. It's actually, I've always said it was as a recruiter, recruiting for yourself is is the hardest part of our job. And we see it every day with our clients, how, how challenging it can be, especially when you have a business that has such a strong purpose and culture fit is is paramount to success and you also when it's your baby you, you know it's a family and that's that's what we've created at jbm and i know you have the same there yeah. but you have a very loyal team that have been with you for a long time so do you envisage growing much over the next year you've obviously got lots of work coming in but can yeah you keep a lean team i think i would always like to have a lean team or subdivide the team into different teams to different things because i don't ever want to have the problem that I see in a lot of the companies that ask us to consult for them. You know, some of these companies that are, you know, multiple thousands of people get into a very hierarchical structure where there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of pushing papers around. And it's very difficult to get innovation through and you get a lot of frustrated people who are not able to live up to their full potential. And it's crazy. I don't want to run a business like that. I'm not interested in building an empire either. I think we do need to grow the team because we are not at our maximum efficiency yet, but I don't want to have 10,000 people reporting directly to me because that's just not the... We're interested in having an impact, and I think there are faster ways to achieve that than to put a lot of people in a box somewhere. I think there's a, there's better methods now. And if for us to have impact, it means that what we do needs to be duplicated in lots of different geographies by lots of different teams that are as self-autonomous, great. I don't, you know, whatever gets the job done is how we're going to do it. But we're not wedded to this idea of just numbers means success. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Are there any other commonly held beliefs when it comes to careers that you disagree with? And if so, what what are they? Well, I don't, I think the whole world of careers is really massively changing because you still have our parents' generation where they worked for companies for a, like sometimes a single company for most of their life and they saw themselves as a thing, like a teacher or a plumber or, and now people can dabble in lots of different things. You know, you could be a teacher for a while and then you could go into catering and then you, you know, there's lots of different things that you could do. So you can kind of apply a skill set to whatever challenges you're interested in facing if you're resilient enough to adapt and change. And, you, you, you know, obviously I'm talking about people who have this a bit of privilege here because you, if you're living week to week, you wouldn't have this kind of an opportunity. But I guess my biggest thing is I really, really, really hate it when people put themselves in a position where they feel trapped in the job that they're in because of lifestyle commitments that they have. And they spend 
12 hours a day hating themselves and what they do. Such a waste, isn't it? It is a waste, particularly when you think, gosh, you're, you know, you've got this amazing education. You've got people who support you and love you. You've, you could just do this and tweak that and give something else a try and not care what people thought of you and be a lot happier. I just think, you know, you need the, the career advice I give people is if it's not challenging or interesting or in any way good, why are you doing it? Sadly, we speak to so many people that feel that way. I guess it's one of the reasons I set JBM up was to to help people transition out of jobs they hate and find something that gives them purpose. Yeah. But it's uh, unfortunately an all too common story. Hopefully that will change now. And there are many options with the growing gig economy and entrepreneurialism being sort of rife, particularly in London. I think uh, there's lots of lots of opportunity out there. Mm. I hope people will be inspired by this story to go out there and set up on their own. Work-life balance, I'm interested. When you live at your office yeah. and you work with your other half, yeah. how do you achieve a work-life balance? in such a unique situation you don't I, I don't I don't think you do we have a life and there's work in it and that's it I don't compartmentalize these things in the same way that I don't think of myself as a an athlete because I run twice a week you know <laughs> I, I, I just you, you don't. are an athlete Cressy I but know you, you've done some serious but you don't so. you don't do that it's just a life I think the other interesting thing is that you know since we started the company we've been on one holiday together that was a pure holiday and not sort of something we had to do for family or something like that. And I think that's because why do you need a holiday when you enjoy the, the, the everyday challenges of your life? And that means that you probably don't need to achieve a balance because the balance is coming from somewhere. So again, maybe that's a set of rules I don't want to follow. I don't think I need three holidays a year as traditionally defined. I think I just need to, you know, in make sure that Elvis and I are still on track for impact and that we're challenged by it and that we're enjoying it together. Refreshing answer. We are getting to the end of the interview, I'm sorry to say, but there are a few last questions that I think our listeners will be really interested in. So I'm interested in your favorite interview question and why. I think the favorite question always to me is, is you know, it's things like why fire hose? Why fire hose in particular? Why not something else? And then, especially young school children, will then reel off a list of other wastes that they might find particularly. Why not cracked cricket bats? Why not this? Why not that? And I love that question because it's uh, it's it's like well, because no one else was solving that problem, because it was there, because I felt we were capable of solving it. I f truly felt intrinsically that we could solve it, and we did. So I think I take that approach to every other waste material that we tackle now. But yeah, I, I like the why fire hose okay, question. That's a good one. And for people that are thinking about making a move at the moment, anyone listening today, what one piece of advice would you give them before they take the plunge? Research is everything. People really underestimate it. In general, most entrepreneurs are going into a market where they see a niche, where they see a gap. And it's because they want to solve a problem that they think no one else has solved yet. And that means to me, you have to be better at the problem than anyone else, not better at your particular solution. Otherwise, you won't pivot, you won't change, you won't adjust. You'll be wedded to a solution rather than the problem. 
find out everything there is to know about that problem. So for me, finding, I needed to know everything about fire hose. So we went to Yorkshire to where it's made. We became experts in nitrile rubber and nylon woven cores. We saw the nylon spinning machines. We looked at all of the MSDS and all the data sheets about what the properties of fire hose were. We talked to everybody in the fire service who would talk to us about what a fire hose could do. We looked at where anyone else was using nitrile rubber in the industry. We analyzed how much waste there was, where it was located, where we could geographically get it to, what kinds of equipment were involved. You know, we wanted to know the problem and become experts in the problem. So research is key. Be the best in the world at understanding the particular problem you want to solve. And then let the business take shape after that. Don't rush in with a solution that may end up being inappropriate. It's a very inspiring story, Cressy. We have run out of time, sadly. But before we go... Who are you most inspired by and why? Oh, that's my grandmother every time. My mom's mom was a unique woman who loved beyond anyone's capacity to love, wasted absolutely nothing, not time, not talent, not energy, could make 20 apple pies in an hour. That's a great skill. I mean, this was just an unbelievable woman who just was also fierce, managed to get a university degree after 27 years of doing one correspondence course after another. I mean, a single mother in the 50s and 60s in Canada, just an incredible woman from every single angle you could look at it. And yeah, ridiculously humble as well. She sounds amazing. Mm. Thank you very much for your time, Cressy. It's been great to speak to you. Thanks. Cheers. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of The 40 Minute Mentor, brought to you by JBM. So if you'd like to tell us what you thought of the podcast, or find out how we can help you with your next career move, please do get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you.